Everybody, I'm calling. I'm now calling. I'm grateful to be here tonight. I, uh, I want everybody from Louisville, Kentucky, to raise your hand. Isn't that amazing? I feel like I'm talking to my home group. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of these, a lot of folks here that have been coming to this uh, roundup for years, and uh, for years I've heard about it, and. Uh, so I was delighted when Charlie called me and asked me to come and uh, and have the opportunity to come and share with you all this weekend. It's uh, been a wonderful weekend so far, and I have to say, Ray, wherever you are, you did a great job on the weather. Another beautiful day, and um, met some great people and ran across some people that I met before along the way and, and uh, caught up with them some and got a chance to meet uh, the infamous Buck Melton. And I told him if he did the same thing to me that he did to Jack Sullivan, he was in big trouble. <laughs> but it is really good to be here tonight. And, and uh, you know, to see so many people sober, I was looking at this banner and, you know, thinking about but for the grace of God and but for the grace of God, not one of us would be in this room. And uh, I am eternally grateful for that. But for the grace of God, I would... Uh, have come to in, in a lot of other places and, and probably been dead by now, but on August the 2nd of 1985, I hope that I had what was my last drink. And uh, because of rooms like this and people like you in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, who opened up your arms and your hearts to me, I haven't found it necessary to take another drink. Uh, my home group is the Audubon Group, and we got some home group members here. Um, and I, uh, we meet on Monday night at 8 o'clock at the uh, Poplar Level Road at uh, the Audubon Park United Methodist Church. If you're ever in Louisville on Monday night, I strongly encourage you to come by and, and visit with us. we got a great group, and we, uh, we get there early, and we stay late. And uh, you're always welcome. We have a good home group. Um, hmm. I'm a little nervous. and. You know, I, I always do get a little nervous right before I get up here, and the old-timers told me it was God's way of shaking the truth out of me. <laughs> so it sounds, feels like it's going to be an honest evening. <laughs> I uh, started my day out with some of my favorite people from Louisville, and uh, we had a nice uh, nice breakfast. And uh, I, uh, I want to tell you all that uh, Phil Mudd owes 30 cents over at the K and something cafeteria because he, he snuck out for, without paying for two jellies. And <laughs> 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 I'm only kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> but we've had a great day. It's been a lot of fun. We uh, spent some time down by the water and uh, just some quiet time this afternoon. This is a great town. I've never been here. I've never been to South Carolina. Um, I think you all are in the SEC, aren't you? Are you on the SEC? Oh, ACC. Okay. Well, anyway, um, I know you all are a basketball, and basketball state, too. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood that would uh, be considered the other side of the tracks. It was a public housing project in Louisville, Kentucky, called Clarksdale, and um, growing up down there in, these, in this public housing was um, actually it was a lot of fun. Back in the back in the 60s, you know, it was public housing, but it wasn't quite as as um, run down as as, uh, as some of the things are today, and, and it really wasn't, you know, uh, abject poverty. Everybody was 
fairly impoverished, but you know, when nobody's got anything, you don't have anything to compare it to, so you're not missing anything, you know, and so that's kind of how it was in our neighborhood. I'm the child of two alcoholics, my mother and father are both alcoholic, sister of three alcoholics, I have three brothers who are alcoholic, all admitted alcoholics. Uh, you know, the granddaughter of alcoholics, the niece of alcoholics, I married alcoholics, I divorced alcoholics, <laughs> alcoholics divorced me. Um, you know, I, I got to alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous and they say alcoholism runs in families. And I said, well, by God, they've galloped in mine, you know. <laughs> we had it everywhere. And, um, and yet we didn't know it was alcoholism, you know. You don't know it's alcoholism when you're drinking like that and before you get here. And, and uh, I grew up in a Catholic family, and we were, we were a fairly typical Catholic, uh, Irish, German, alcoholic family. I mean, Irish and German, you know there's going to be alcohol around, you know. And, and growing up down there, I went to uh, Catholic grade schools, and uh, I lived on... Uh, what was the corner of Hancock and Walnut Street. And if you're not from Louisville, it really won't have any meaning to you. But Hancock and Walnut Street was a, you know, a jumping place to be back in, in the late 60s down there in that inner city environment. And uh, as a young kid uh, growing up down in that neighborhood, I learned a lot of things fast. And, uh, you know, I, I looked to uh, the people who were doing a lot of those kind of things that uh, we hear about uh, when we get in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I wanted to be just like them, you know. I, there was a little bar that was situated right in the middle of the of the block. It was called the 626 Bar, and the 626 Bar was a little beer joint kind of tavern, and my mom and dad were down there every Friday and Saturday night. And, you know, I should have known something early on because every time they left to go to the bar, they'd say, we're going to the corner, and it wasn't on the corner. It was right in the middle of the block, you know. <laughs> Distorted perception of reality right away. And... <laughs> <laughs> and they spent a lot of time down there in the 626 bar, and as a young kid running around in those courts in that, in that neighborhood, I'd sit across the street on Walnut Street, and I'd watch all that stuff go on, you know, and those neon lights were flashing, and those long cars would pull up on Friday and Saturday night, and those guys would get out of those cars, and they would open those trunks up, and they would be pulling out, you know, every kind of small appliance you could imagine. And I knew they didn't own the Western Auto store, you know, and, and they were selling them at real good prices. And, uh, <laughs> and so those were the kind of people that I wanted to be just like because as a young kid at eight years old already, I was absolutely consumed with self-centered fear. I was scared to death of everything. I didn't feel good enough. I didn't feel pretty enough. I didn't feel smart enough. You know, it just didn't matter uh, where I was, who I was with, or what I was doing. It was never enough for me. And I, I looked to uh, things outside of myself uh, from a very early age to validate me, to make me feel better on the inside, because on the inside there was this huge black hole that never could get full. And I, you know, had all the deep-seated insecurities and inferiorities uh, that come with the disease of alcoholism. And I believe that I had the disease of alcoholism long before I ever took a drink, long before I had the isms. Um, but I was the only girl in this family. And um, and I felt real different and real special, and I felt like I stood out. You know, I was uh, the apple of my daddy's eye, and, and he let everybody know about it, you know. And it was kind of like my mom and my three brothers on this side of the room and me and my dad on the other side of the room, and, and that's sort of how it was. And uh, my dad was a, would be a big enabler in my life, and he bailed me out of a lot of things that I got into. And, you know, one of those people that nearly loved me to death. Um, 
So I had this idea that, you know, I was supposed to be able to get my way early on, and particularly for men, and that has caused me an incredible amount of problems in my life. Um, but I was, you know, the, the only girl in this family, and I, I was the third child out of four, and I had three brothers and two older brothers, and Charlie was the kind of, kind of kid that could walk into the room, and he would tonight, uh, 19 years sober and Alcoholics Anonymous today, that could light this room up, you know, just a wonderful guy, and he could sing and he could dance, and everybody loved him, and he was funny, and he could tell great stories, and, and everybody loved him. And Joey was the kid in our family that put all of his energy into playing athletics and he became an outstanding basketball player and went on to be a, a you know an all-state recognized basketball player at St. Xavier High School which is a prestigious boys school in Louisville and uh, and then there was me you know and I was a true Kentucky Wildcat coming out of the womb and um, I had problems early on, long before I ever took a drink. And, you know, I always say that, you know, I, I, I don't know that I created the Al-Anon handshake, but I can sure tell you that, you know, if you were around me for any length of time, you always had it. And it was, you know, sort of that look that put their hand on their head, like, what's she, what's she going to do next? And, uh, you know, I got used to that look over the years. I got used to it very quickly. Uh, and then my youngest brother was Patrick, and he was uh, a lot, quite a bit younger than me and, and just a real quiet kind of kid. And, you know, he says today he couldn't get a word in edgewise. It wasn't that he didn't want to talk. He just couldn't, you know, there was so much going on around him, you know, he, he couldn't get in there, you know. And so we were this, just, you know, one big, happy, dysfunctional, drunk family. And, um, you know, my dad was a barroom brawler kind of guy and, and uh, you know, really a good guy and a lot of fun, but really a... Uh, uh, at the time of his death, when he, he died when he was 58 years old from his alcoholism, and uh, he died a tragic alcoholic death. He died a slow alcoholic death from his alcoholism. And uh, But for many, many years, you know, we were a family that drank together and played together and hung around together and did all that kind of stuff and, and had a lot of fun, but there was also a lot of pain involved over the years. Um, as I said, my mom and dad were, you know, kind of beer joint uh, tavern kind and, and uh, every Friday and Saturday night traipsed off to the 626 bar and, and as a young kid sitting down there on those inner city streets with my buddies I'd look across the bar and or across the street into the 626 bar and, and uh, sometimes I'd even get to go in there on a Friday night you know and I mean there's something wrong with an eight-year-old kid that wants to be up in the middle of the booth on, in a you know a dirty stinking beer joint on Friday night you know I didn't give a darn about the uh, Girl Scouts I wanted to be right in the middle of the 626 bar and, and it was exciting to me and I can remember as a young kid walking in that place and one whole side of the room was a bar with those bar stools all the way down the wall you know and there was never an empty seat on Friday and Saturday night every bar stool was filled and people were sitting on those bar stools and and they were talking to each other in a language that I didn't know how to speak they were talking to each other in a language that I, I just just couldn't come for me and it just seemed like you know everything they said sounded right and looked right and the, the uh, bar was lined with beer bottles and, and wine glasses and shot glasses and, and just this aura of everything being right, everything being right. And the other side of the 626 bar had those little booths with the little midget jukeboxes up in the middle of them, you know, and somebody was always putting a roll of uh, quarters in there and those Patsy Cline tunes were belting out and my mom and dad were up in the middle of the dance floor doing the rat race or the jitterbug or, you know, sometimes in the middle of a barroom brawl. And, and that's how I grew up. And, and that's what I loved, you know. And, and I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait as a young kid to get old enough to be sitting on one of those bar stools 
ordering the next round of drinks or putting the next quarter in the jukebox. You know, it, it wasn't a matter of whether I was going to drink or not. It was, it was when, you know, and, and I held off as long as I could. I didn't drink in the third grade, but I sure felt like I needed one. And, and um, you know, I held off until I was 12, you know, <laughs> eighth grade. I... Uh, I remember growing up down in that neighborhood and, and uh, you know, we always had a lot of people around our house and kind of the house that everybody hung out at and a lot of friends and I had a lot of friends. If you looked at me from the outside, it looked like everything was okay. I had a lot of kids around me. I was a popular kid. I was smart in school. Learning came easy for me. A lot of good things were going on. But on the inside, I was coming apart at the seams. You know, I've already told you I was filled with a deep sense of inferiority. I never thought I was pretty enough. I never thought I was good enough. I never felt like I measured up. And it didn't matter what I achieved in my life. I just could never get there. Um, when I got to be about uh, 12 years old, we moved out of that neighborhood. Get this, the projects were going down. <laughs> the neighborhood was getting bad. And uh, we moved up to uh, a neighborhood called Germantown, which is a, a working class uh, blue-collar neighborhood in Louisville. And, uh, and I got up to Germantown, and, and coming from that neighborhood to where I went to in Germantown, it was kind of like going you know, from the uh, United States to Saudi Arabia. I mean, it was just real different. It was a real different culture for me. And, and uh, things were very different up there. And as a young kid going into the eighth grade and going into puberty, and uh, I had been around those kids all my life. I had been in the same neighborhood all of my life. And I got up to, you know, to East Kentucky Street, and I didn't know what to be. And I didn't have the kind of skills that you all have given me in Alcoholics Anonymous to be able to do something so simple as to walk into a room and stick my hand out and say, I'm the new kid here. Can you show me around? Will you hang out with me for the day and, and be my friend? I was scared to death. I was filled with intense fear on the inside, and, and I didn't know how to do that. And so, you know, I was the kind of person that used my anger as a mask, and I covered all that fear up with anger, and I kept you way out here so you couldn't get close enough to me to hurt me. And I got up there in the eighth grade, and a guy in my class was making smart remarks to me about the neighborhood that I had come from. And I began to do to him what I had learned to do down there on the streets in that tough neighborhood, you know. And I walloped him one day. And, and uh, Sister Amelia pulled me into the principal's office right away in the eighth grade and said, you know, what I thought was the strangest thing that I had ever heard. She said, Colleen, little girls don't fight. And I thought, oh, God, here I am again, another one that don't understand me, you know. And, and I, uh, I just didn't fit in no matter where I went. And, uh, and I began, I think, at that age to probably twist myself into whatever I needed to become to get your approval. I uh, had my first drunk shortly after I moved to that neighborhood. And, and it started out so innocently and, and, you know, so innocuous that it's almost not worth mentioning except for what it did for me that night on those steps. And what happened was I went back down to St. Boniface Parish to the old church that we had belonged to, uh, and my older brothers took me to Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve. I was 12 years old, and I was in the eighth grade. And after Mass, we went back over into the old neighborhood, and I was reunited with all the kids that I had grown up with. And I sat on the steps that night in that apartment, and my oldest brother, who had always been my hero and my mentor and, and uh, somebody that I wanted to be just like, handed me a bottle of Fall City beer. And before I ever took a drink, before I ever had any, I wanted more. Yeah. I guess it would be predictable that I would have been here tonight, you know, but 
uh, we don't know those things. And, and so I drank that night and I drank as much as I could. And I want you to know that something miraculous took place on the inside of me. For the first time in my life, all those thoughts that were racing around in my head kind of slowed down. And all those feelings that were rolling around in my gut kind of slowed down. I mean, I sort of felt like I stepped inside the circle, you know, and, and it seemed like there was just sort of a candlelight glow around the room. And, and, I, and I felt that sense of unity that I had never felt in my life. I felt whole with a few drinks. And my eyes got bluer and my body grew up overnight and I became the most sought-after little adolescent on the streets of Germantown, you know. <laughs> I was a legend in my own mind before I was 13. And... Um, and I had a lot of trouble with alcohol from the very beginning. I'm not somebody that can stand here and give you um, a successful history of drinking. I had tremendous problems. Brenda talked about it last night. I don't know if I was an alcoholic before I drank, but I know just as soon as I did, I was. And that's how it was for me. I, uh, given what that, that alcohol did for me that night, I never looked back from that moment. And from the time I was 12 years on, alcohol became the most priority and the most sought-after priority in my life. I went to it as often as I could, as much as I could. Um, had lots of problems. Blackout drinker, 13 and 14 years old. Blackout drinker. Uh, I was the kid, you know, I had that first drunk, and every Friday night after that, they pushed me home in a Kroger cart. <laughs> I was a sloppy, obnoxious, belligerent drunk. I was a sloppy, obnoxious, belligerent drunk from the time I was a young kid. And, and you know, my grandmother and my mother had always had, I think, these great ideals for me. You know, they, they had this idea of the kind of young lady that they wanted me to be, sort of this little, you know, princess type, you know. But it's hard to be a princess when you're passed out on the floor. And, uh, and that's where I was most of the time. You know, I was a real mess by the time I got into high school. Um, high school for me was just a marginal thing. You know, I got through there by the skin of my teeth. Uh, most of my time was spent at some park out in J-Town uh, drinking beer. And, uh, and I got in a, you know, lots of trouble in high school, uh, nothing outstanding in my record. I had several suspensions and all that kind of stuff, the kind of kid that always had to bring your mom back to school with you on Monday. Uh, these are all things that, you know, I'm not, I'm not um, proud of but they are certainly the things that helped kick me through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, by the time I was a young, young woman, a young woman, I could have been here. And I was years away from Alcoholics Anonymous because I always blamed all of my problems on you. It was always that family. It was always those brothers. It was always my mom and dad. If they would just leave me alone, I'm not hurting anybody. And I had a blame uh, dynamic in me that, that uh, just went on and on and on for years. And you know, when you blame everybody else for the state of your life, you can't change it. You know, and, and it wasn't until I would get to you years and years later that I would be able to take responsibility for my own life. I... Uh, Graduated from high school, and the high school sweetheart that I had had uh, came back from Vietnam, and, you know, he was a good man. He was a good guy, and he sort of said that now or never thing to me, and, and I was 18 years old, and, and uh, I had no more business in a relationship uh, with anyone 
uh, and he asked me to marry him, and I married him. And I, you know, I think everybody thought, you know, well, now she'll be okay. Let's get her over here, and you know, Michael will take care of her, and and she'll be okay. And and for the next six years, uh, Michael took care of me, and he tried every way in the world to help me, and he tried every way in the world to love me, and um, and I was so spiritually sick by the time I was uh, 18 and 20 years old, that I could not accept his love. And I think that is the, the essence of this disease. I think the essence of the disease of alcoholism is an inability to give and receive love. And that's where I was as a young woman in a first marriage with a man who was a good man, who lived a life based on values, went to work every day, you know, wanted that clean laundry once a week and a hot meal every now and then, you know, and and uh, it was hard to keep up with because uh, he was working all those overtime shifts and, and I was on all those overtime shifts up at the headrest bar on Frankfurt Avenue, you know, and lots of times at, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning we'd meet each other coming home on the front porch and he'd have that al look on his face and... You know, and, and it wasn't long into that marriage that uh, we had a lot of problems from my drinking, a lot of problems. And he would be the first person in my life that ever mentioned my drinking to me. <laughs> Go figure. And we were standing in the kitchen of our home one morning at 4 or 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning after a long night of partying and drinking, and, and I was 24 years old. And Michael looked out of his sober eyes to me, and he said, Colleen, you have got to get some help. You've got a problem. And by now I had graduated into other things, you know. And, and he strongly suggested to me that I uh, go to Our Lady of Peace Hospital and, and get some help. And you know what I strongly suggested to him, don't you? And I left that marriage right away. I abandoned him. And I left him, a six-year marriage, and divorced him right away because I was unwilling to stop drinking. I, uh, at this time, was working in the mayor's office for the city of Louisville, which was a wonderful spot for an inferior, insecure, uh, self-centered, egomaniac like me. And I can remember, you know, I would drive down Jefferson Street on my way to City Hall, and I would stop at the red light at the corner at the, by that neighborhood that I had grown up in, you know, that inner city neighborhood, and I'd see all those old street drunks out in front of the brass rail bar, you know, early in the morning. And I, on my way to City Hall, I would look out my windshield and I would think, if I ever get that bad, I'll quit. If I ever get that bad, I'll quit. You know, I can see it in you, but I can't see it in me. I can't see it in me. And I really believed that there was something I could do about my drinking. Um, you know, politics can get you a job, but it can't keep you one. And I got fired from the mayor's office. And um, I went to work across the street right away in another good job in county government. I've always been able to get good jobs. You know, uh, when we sober up for a period of time, we do okay, you know. And, but there always seems to come that time again when we have to take that drink prior to coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to work across the street, and by now I was in my mid to late 20s, and I was really in bad shape. I was starting to have physical problems from my drinking. Uh, I couldn't make it to work five days a week, and I was really trying to figure out how to get them to mail me my check, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. you know, I didn't want to suit up and show up at all. And um, I ended up, you know, in a situation in county government. Uh, it, it was the ultimate, you know, manipulation. It was a classic alcoholic uh, uh, 
uh, saying it, I ended up in a um, an, an affair with the public official that I worked for, and uh, you know, me and that judge would uh, leave together uh, in the afternoon, and we'd go back to work together in the morning, and that judge would be putting people in jail for the same things we had done the night before, you know. Uh, but I was on the right side of the bench, you know, so it didn't matter to me, and I wasn't going to say anything. And uh, and I ended up, you know, drinking myself out of that job. And I went to work in a little bar downtown called uh, called the Decanter Bar. It was your typical little downtown uh, place that people stopped by uh, after leaving the corporate offices and heading home. And and um, you know, I could make it to work on time there. I didn't have to be there at four o'clock in the afternoon. And and uh, and I was always anxious to get there because I knew once I got there, I could drink all the booze I I could get in me free. And and uh, and, you know, I really progressed into the stages of alcoholism that, where we just really begin to, um, to compromise every moral and, and every belief and every value that we have ever believed in or ever had in our life. And, and I don't know if anybody here has had to do that. I'm sure you have. But if you keep drinking, that's where, that's where we get to. Um, I, uh, I've always heard that if you drink long enough, uh, you either become a painter or you go to work in a bar, and I couldn't paint, you know, so I, I had to take that bar job. And um, I went to work in that bar for a while, and, and you know, uh, in fact, we were just talking about stuff like this a while ago. Uh, he showed up, you know, he showed up in the bar, and uh, he was a nice guy. And it was Mr., you know, Mr. Wright, the one I was always looking for. And uh, we knew each other for two weeks, and we moved in together. It seemed like the right thing to do, you know. And, and I, I mean, I've had a number of what I thought were Mr. Wrights in my life, and what they've turned out to be was Mr. Wright now. And, you know. <laughs> so we moved in together and ended up in a, uh, in a second marriage there. And, and you know, uh, I am so grateful for the inventory process in Alcoholics Anonymous. It has literally changed my life for me. Uh, it's taught me the things about myself. It, it's shown me the broken parts of me that that uh, God can heal. And in that inventory process that, that we learn so much about ourselves in relationship, uh, what I found out about that relationship was that, you know, he wasn't the love of my life and he wasn't Mr. Right at all. He was a stockbroker who wore nicely tailored three-piece suits and drove a long Cadillac and he had a wallet that never ran out of money, you know, and I wanted what he had, and I went to any length to get it. And, uh, and um, five years down the road, uh, we were in a situation that was horrible, just horrible. Uh, he drank like me, and um, we ended up in places all over the country and all over the continental United States. And, you know, when you're walking around uh, places like uh, Barbados Islands down in the Caribbean and and you've been asked to leave the hotel and you've got a pocket full of money and you're afraid to walk in and take yourself off the streets again. Um, you're stuck in the disease of alcoholism. And, and, and our big book describes that as pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And that's where we were. It was a horrible, horrible relationship. And, and both of us suffered just incredible emotional and spiritual damage. Terrible damage. Uh, five years after that relationship started, it ended, and it was the early 80s, and my brother was getting sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and my daddy was dying from his alcoholism. Um, it was 1982. I had left that second marriage, and I went to stay with my best friend because I've already told you I couldn't hold a job 
you know, and we just go stay with people, you know. They just let us stay with them for a while, for a few days, until I get the next job or the next this or the next that. And so I went and stayed with my best friend, and she took care of it, and she went to work, and she paid all the bills because I could not suit up and show up for life. I was 27 or 28 years old, and I was a raging, raging alcoholic. I uh, remember being in this apartment, and my oldest brother, Charlie, had gotten sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he was probably sober some 30 or 40 days. And my father had just come home from the hospital. He had just been sent home to die, and they told him that he had uh, alcoholic cardiomyopathy, and they even stated that on his death certificate. What that is is congestive heart failure as a direct result of his alcoholism. My daddy was a young man. He was 58 years old. He had always been a big... Um, construction worker, robust kind of guy. And the last year of his life, he dwindled down to about 130 pounds dying from this disease. And he was so weak, he could not get up and walk across the room and get himself a cup of coffee. If you've never seen anybody die with the disease of alcoholism, it is not a pretty sight. And I loved him more than I can tell you. He was, you know... He was the guy that, that I could always get, you know, 20 bucks from. He was the guy that would always be good for the rest of the car payment or, you know, the rest of the rent until payday. He was always there for me, you know. And there wasn't any place I'd rather be than sitting beside my dad at the Swan Cafe in Germantown uh, neighborhood while he played Pinochle drinking beer with him, you know. That's just the kind of relationship that we had. And on a Thursday night, I was in that apartment, and the telephone rang, and it was my dad. And he told me that, uh, here's what he always said to me, and he said it to me that night. I remember it as clear as yesterday. He said, I'd like to see your smiling face. And I walked out of that apartment that night and got into the car to go over uh, to where my mom and dad lived, a 10- or 15-minute automobile ride from Frankfurt Avenue. And I stopped up at that little bar on the corner of Frankfurt and Ewing to get a drink in me before I went over there to be with my dad. And that was on Thursday night. And on Monday morning, I was back in that apartment, and I came to out of a blackout to answer the telephone. And it was my mother telling me that my daddy had died and that they had not known where to find me for four days. And you know what? I couldn't tell them where I was because I didn't know. That's the disease of alcoholism. And I hated myself for that. I hated me for that. I could not understand what was wrong with me. I knew there was something wrong with me, but I didn't know what it was. I uh, went to that funeral and through that funeral home, and my brother was sober for 45 days. And you all came in droves to be with him. And you stood on both sides of him, and you carried him through that so that he didn't have to drink through that process. And it was wonderful. It was great. And I got to see that and witness that. And I thought it was wonderful for Charlie because he needed it. I uh, came to in a run-down house over on Goss Avenue. And it was about seven or eight months after my dad had died. I was 28 years old, raging drunk. I called the office that day to get the doctor's report on some tests I had done, and they told me the rabbit had died. Now, I was unemployed. I was uh, homeless. I didn't have a place to live. I was, remember, I was staying with someone, and um, 
I didn't know how to take care of myself, much less take care of a child. And I went back to that family, and my mother got that sober brother, and he came to me with about six or eight months of sobriety with all of the glow and all of the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he stuck his hand out to me, and he said, Colleen, please, let me help you. And I'd like to tell you that I jumped on the bandwagon and that I let him help me. Now, I did let him help me. I let him pay for it. I let him fix it. And I let him take care of everything I could possibly let him take care of. Because I like it best when you take care of it and pay for it and fix it. But I continued to do all of the things that I had always done. And the very best that I could do was be seven months sober, or seven months pregnant, back up at that same bar, doing the very same things I had done all the years of my life. I... Uh, I hated myself for that, but I was absolutely powerless. I was powerless to do anything any different. I could not stop drinking. I had nothing in me to keep me from taking the next drink. That baby was born, and my whole family opened their arms up and welcomed uh, that child into the world and loved him and cared for him, and I stayed drunk for the first year and a half of his life. I got a job back in city government. I went on to uh, begin to fall back in with the same crowd that I had always run with. My mother and my best friend took care of that child for the first year and a half of his life, and I ran the streets. I uh, had a lot of problems in the last year of my drinking. Uh, my youngest brother got sober, and now everybody around me was starting to get sober, and I felt like my air was getting cut off. You know, it was getting hard to breathe. You know? <laughs> And uh, they had a keen, you know, just an uncanny way of showing up at the wrong time. You know, like when you just opened the bottle. And, uh, and I can remember back in those days, you know, coming to on a Saturday morning and I would hear Charlie in there in the dining room and he would have my mom hostage at the kitchen table and I'd hear this person going, you know, I'm clancy-eyed, I, you know, and I would think, what on earth is that in there, you know, and, and all those tapes would be playing and... You know, he would lay the big books around and lay the literature around, and and he would get that mean Al-Anon look on his face, you know, at one where they finally had enough, you know. And um, he would follow me around the streets of Germantown and come into the bars, and, you know, I'd look up, and he'd be down at the end of the bar with that mean Al-Anon look on his face, you know. And um, I was a mess. I was a real mess. And... I came to in that bedroom uh, of my mother's home. That baby was a year and a half old. and uh, It was August the 2nd of 1985. And, and I knew that day, you know, what that fellow read here tonight, uh, he said that we have to con be convinced, we have to concede to our innermost selves that we are alcoholic. You know, and, and, and a little farther along in there it says, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we became willing to be open-minded on spiritual matters. And that's where I was that morning, August the 2nd of 1985. I was convinced that if I walked out of that bedroom door that day and took one more anything, that I would be a dead woman. I knew I would die. And I said that quick alcoholic prayer, you know, God help me, that short one that is the most important one we ever say because it opens the door to grace. It opens the door of grace for us. I um, 
that evening went to the token club to that 8 o'clock Saturday night meeting. I had been there lots of times before. You know, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1982 to support my brother. And um, in and out and, and sneaking into meetings and sneaking out of meetings for from 1982 to 1985. You know, I didn't want anybody to see me. I thought you might think I was alcoholic. <laughs> and I walked into that meeting that night at the Token Club, and, and how is this for the grace of God? My mother on one arm and my best friend of 20 years on the other. You know, that best friend that I had stayed with that had done all those things for me. One on each arm. Because they had been going to Al-Anon. And, you know, I... I had been real mad at them because I thought they were going to Al-Anon telling all my secrets, you know. And, and uh, they were getting better, and they were not doing the things for me that they used to do, and I was not liking it. And um, they came to AA with me that night, and I always tease them and say, you know, you, you finally got in the right room. Um, and they stayed here, too. They got sober with me. So it was a great journey for all three of us to get sober together in 1985. And I... Um, Went back to work in city government, got a great job back, and, and uh, really began to get on the journey of living in sobriety and living a sober life. I got in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. But you know what happened for me that night in that AA meeting that had never happened for me before in those three years that I had been coming to AA? was I sat in those chairs that night, and I remember shaking apart on the inside and shaking apart on the outside, you know. But for the first time in my life, I knew that I belonged. I knew that I belonged with you, and I wanted to be here. I had what I guess is a sincere desire to stop drinking. And I continued to come back to AA, and I really got in the middle. And I got sober in a newcomer's group up at a place called the Bardstown Road Group. And uh, it met every Wednesday night, you know. And on any given night, there might be a 100 years of sobriety at newcomer's group, man. It was full of old-timers that, that really... Uh, adopted me, you know, and there's a woman here tonight that I got sober with, and man, we were there every Wednesday night religiously, and and uh, as was my mom, and, and we just had so many people that were so good to us. They loved us so much, and um, it was just a great way to be able to come into AA. I had some family members that were already sober here, and now, I think they were waiting for us. <laughs> they acted like they were excited when we got here. I uh, I loved that Bardstown Road group, and, and I got a home group right away, and I did all the, a lot of the things that you all told us to do. You know, you get a home group and get a sponsor and, and you know, uh, begin to try and live the steps and put the steps into practice into your life. And, and, uh, and I tried to do those things, and I showed up at my home group, and, and I made coffee, and, and I put up chairs, and I stayed got there early and I stayed late and I greeted people at the door and you know I can remember uh, being you know I was named uh, the medallion chairman for the Bardstown Road Group one time and what that meant was I got to go through the medallions every month and at the end of the month I put the little name of the person celebrating whatever period of sobriety they had on that little envelope and then when we had the meeting you know I uh, got to call them up there and give them their medallion man I felt so important. I felt useful. I had never felt useful in my life, you know. And and that's how those kinds of things began to come back into our life, very quietly and very simply. 
I uh, got a sponsor, and at five years of sobriety, my sponsor was near death. And uh, she went into the hospital and was having a kidney transplant. And I remember being at my home group on a Saturday night, and Sonny had had a kidney transplant the day earlier. And I went up to the hospital after the home group, and I felt so helpless. And I mean, you know, when we are when we are young in sobriety, we put everything we've got into our sponsors. And I did that, and and uh, and I was afraid that my sponsor was dying. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. And, and yet, I had a relationship with, with the God of my understanding already. And I remember going to the uh, hospital that night and sitting at her bedside. And she had a book, and she had the AA Big Book on her nightstand. And, and I just picked that big book up, and I began to, you know, read uh, what was in the third step there. And, and I remember for the first time in my life, you know, I really began to feel useful. I, I really felt like God was doing something with me. That's the greatest feeling in the world to get restored to that. I've uh, I've had lots of wonderful experiences over the years. Uh, you know, I uh, have been able to share these rooms and, and these seats with every member of my immediate family. You know, it's a a miracle that one person, one alcoholic, gets sober. It's a miracle, and we have a family that uh, has everybody sober in it today. And and uh, it has been a great way for us to get to know each other and to learn to live together. Um, it was not easy. Getting sober and living in your family with other people getting sober and, and getting in recovery is not easy. You know, uh, as many of you all know, there's lots of family members in here. Uh, of the, uh, I know there's lots of people here of the same families that uh, it's very difficult, you know, and, and yet it's... Uh, it's great to be able to, to, to love them from a distance and turn them over to you and let you know let you take them and and, uh, and that's what my brothers had to do to me. They had to get out of the way. You know, I uh, I can remember when my oldest brother got sober and, and Charlie uh, wanted so badly for me to be sober and he tried so hard to help me and thank God God moved him out of town. You know, <laughs> transferred him to Lexington and uh, and got him out of the way. And when he got out of the way, uh, there was a seat for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. And and um, and I truly believe that. I believe that it was necessary for him to be removed from me. And uh, it's just been a great time. You know, we've had, we've had a lot of uh, wonderful things happen in our life, and we've had a lot of pain in our life. And uh, over the last several years, there's been some real challenges in my life. I've been married in sobriety, and I've been divorced in sobriety. And... And what I've learned through a lot of those things is that uh, what sometimes looks like the greatest tragedy can be the greatest blessing. And um, I was concerned, you know, my son has has really never had um, a great relationship with his dad. For the most part, his dad has been absent and has been for many, many years and uh, really has never known his dad very well. And and, uh, I was concerned recently, very recently, about the impact of some of those things on Adam's life and and, uh, and certainly the impact on some of my decision-making uh, on his life. And, and I'll tell you how God brings things to full circle for us in perfect timing. My son is a senior in high school today, and I went through a divorce a couple of years ago that was really tragic and painful and devastating. It was awful. And, and he was deeply affected. 
And um, I was worried about him, about what kinds of destructive things he was getting into. And very recently, I came home one day and he said, Mom, I've got something that I need for you to read. And I knew that over the last several years, he had been really angry at me for getting in and out of relationships and, and changing our lives in ab abruptly and things not working out the way that we thought they would work out. And he could never get to a point where he could talk to me about it. And I was concerned for Adam. And a couple of weeks ago, I came home from work and he had been working on the computer and he said, I want you to read something. And I went over to the computer, asked to write a personal narrative for himself, uh, for senior English. And I started to read this personal narrative. And it was about the importance of parents being there for kids. And it was about him growing up without a dad. And his dad not being there and the impact that it's had on his life and the way that it's made him feel. It was deep and it was full of pain. And I got to the end of the narrative and he said, but I want to talk about my mom. God knows she loves me. And he went on to put some sentences about, you know, the way that I've been there for him and been able to support him and tried to close the gaps. And in that instant, I knew that God was telling me that he was okay. And I knew that God was telling me that I had done my job as a mom. And I did that job as a mom because you taught me how. You taught me everything and gave me everything I ever needed to get through that, to walk with courage through whatever situation we might be facing. I, uh, recently graduated from school and um, it was something that had been a long personal goal for me. I had never finished my college education and it was something that I had wanted to do for a long time and kept putting on the back burner. And I finally got to do that this year. And I immediately went to work in you know, my field of it, of education and, and uh, got a good job and, and have really, again, began to see how God just continues to work in our life and how when we finally get out of the driver's seat, because from time to time in my sobriety, I've gotten into the driver's seat and, and uh, those situations have brought me great pain, tremendous pain over the last eight years particularly. And um, 
to be able to just stay the course, to be able to continue to do the things that, that you all taught me to do, like suit up and show up, go to your home group, stand at the door, those simple fundamental things that you all taught me so many years ago that I continued to do that walked me through all those situations. I, um, I haven't had a pretty life in the last, you know, some people talk about having bad days. It's been a bad decade. <laughs> but I realized being here this weekend and, and um, really having some time to spend with myself and be quiet that, that I've, I've turned the corner on all that stuff, you know, and, and you have pushed me around that blind corner again. Um, I... Uh, lived in Bardstown, Kentucky a number of years ago and, and um, my son Adam is a good athlete, he's a good basketball player and he came home one day, he was, he was about 12 years old, it was about five years ago and he said, Mom, I made the AAU basketball team and I didn't even know what that was, you know. I, this is my favorite story about Adam, I tell it every time. And he came home and told me he made this AAU basketball team team and it was a select group of kids from Nelson County to play in this prestigious state tournament and I want you to know that in my finite human mind I began to say things to Adam like well now don't get too excited about it because you might not be the standout player he's used to being the standout player and you might not get to start and you know suck it up earn your spot and just be patient and we walked into the gymnasium and the first team we were playing was a team that was being coached by at that time Rick Pitino's son Lexington Catholic and we were all intimidated you know we were going to get put out the first game you know I'm up there in the stand projecting oh we're going to get beat the first game and Adam's not going to get to play and the game started and Adam didn't start just like I knew just like I knew it they played the whole game and that other kid kept playing in front of him and I just kept sitting there you know brewing and it got down to about two minutes on the clock and we were down by eight points and that kid that started in front of Adam fouled out and Adam went into the ball game and they played and, you know, caught up some. And they finally got down to like 18 seconds on the clock. You know, sometimes God just takes you right down to the wire, you know. It's like the photo finish at the Kentucky Derby, you know. Not quite sure what's happening here. And um, 18 seconds left on the clock. We're down by one point, and And Adam is a point guard. And he drove in for a layup. And he missed the layup and he got fouled and he went to the free throw line and you all know the rest of the story he made both those free throws <laughs> and they won the game by one point and they carried him off of the floor he was the hero of the game and you know that is a long way a long way from where we were walking in to that gymnasium with me saying, don't get your hopes up. You might not get to play. 
Just suck it up and pay your dues. But you know, it's a perfect, perfect illustration for me of my will against God's. My plan against God's. Perfect. And if I can remember those things in my life, I can always remember that God's plan for me is so big and so good. So good. And so infinite that my human mind cannot even comprehend it. I am so small. I uh, have been able to heal my relationship with my mother in Alcoholics Anonymous. We got sober together, and as I said, we had always sort of been adversaries. I wasn't the princess she wanted me to be. And I remember being 10 years sober, and she was having some health problems, and I stopped by her house one Christmas week. And just like she always does, she had it all decorated, and the candles burning, and the music on, and all the Christmas trappings. And she said, come here, Colleen, I want to show you something. And she pulled me into the living room and walked me around the coffee table to the couch. And there was this enormous doll sitting on the couch. And I said, oh, Mom, you've gotten that doll for Catherine. Catherine is the daughter of my baby brother. And she went around and got that doll, and she said, No, I got that doll for my little girl. And she brought that doll around to me, and she wrapped that big, silly-looking doll around me in the middle of that living room. And we stood there, embraced in a moment of grace, given to us, by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and all of the years of alienation and hostility and resentment diminished in that perfect moment that you gave us. And I love you for that. A couple of years ago, my youngest brother had a baby, they had a baby boy, and um, I stood on the altar at St. Agnes Church holding this pudgy, blue-eyed baby boy named Michael, and Michael was getting baptized, and I was the godmother. It was the greatest honor I have ever been asked to do in my life. And I absolutely love that child with all my heart. And you know what? He does me too. He thinks I am the greatest thing in the world. And I am not going to tell him any different. <laughs> I say, Michael, do you love your Aunt Colleen more than anything else in the whole wide world? And he goes, uh-huh. <laughs> and I just say, yippee. <laughs> We have a good time today, and, and we've got a good life today. I, uh, 
as I said, recently graduated and, and went into a, a whole new career field in uh, the advertising industry, and uh, I work for the local paper. My son's a senior in high school, and um, he's doing good. He's uh, you know, playing basketball and uh, looking forward to graduation and, and hoping to uh, hoping to get some kind of a partial scholarship maybe and uh, moving on to college. And um, for everything that's happened in our life in the last several years, and there's been some tragic things happen in our life, uh, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous through all of it has been the mainstay. And, you know, Adam had had been in Alateen a number of years ago, and, and I think that uh, even though we, we, we don't know you know, sometimes those teenagers are tough, you know, and they won't let us know what's going on with them. I, um, they live around the example that you give us and you show us, and um, and we give each other. And and believe me, it penetrates. It penetrates. And uh, he's a good kid. He's a really good kid today. I um. I've had lots of great opportunities. I, I sponsor women, and, and I've always had a sponsor. I've had the same sponsor for uh, some 15 years, and, and uh, I love her dearly. She is uh, knows everything there is to know about me and loves me uh, in, in spite of it all and, and because of it all. You know, she absolutely loves me to pieces, and I do her. And she, I'll tell you about a miracle. My sponsor is, is a miracle. She is the one that had that kidney transplant and lasted for 10 years, and it rejected about two years ago. And over the last couple of years, she has been near death many, many times. She has been an insulin-dependent diabetic since she was three years old and had to go back on dialysis and really was in horrible shape, horrible shape. And I remember one day, uh, not very long ago, I left the hospital, and I thought, I'm never going to see Sonny alive again. I thought that. And she got a second kidney transplant and a pancreas transplant. And she is cured of diabetes. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the power of the God of our understanding. Just an in, immense, incredible, unbelievable. I um, get to the opportunity to work with some women, and, and I, I'm like, you know, Brenda talked about last night. I believe that the steps are an ongoing and continuing process. And, uh, you know, I'm a work in progress, you know, and this is what you got so far, you know. <laughs> and, and I stay pretty much in a step, step study with women uh, year-round, and we just started another one, and there's 20 women that uh, come to... Uh, uh, the church where my home group meets on Monday night at 6 o'clock, and we have a step study before our home group meeting, and it's great. But I want to tell you about a step study that we had a few years ago when I was going through this horrible divorce. I uh, was going through this terrible time, and we had already started the step study, and there were about 18 women in the step study, and, and five of those women, one of whom is here tonight, came out of the penitentiary to come to that step group. They were in a halfway house coming out of the penitentiary. And they came to that step group on Tuesday nights. And, and uh, to my knowledge, uh, I think all of, most of those women are all still sober. But this particular step group, I remember 
the night that we took the third step together and everybody in the room went around. Of course, we all knelt and took the third step together. But after that, we all shared one word, just one. All you got was one. One word about the God of your understanding. And nobody shared the same word. And that night after everybody left, I went to bed and I was full. And my heart was filled with gratitude because I went to, be- went to bed believing in everything about the God of my understanding that was shared by every one of those women. For somebody who walked away from the Catholic Church when I was 12 years old, you know, they started talking English. I could hear what they were saying, you know, and uh, and 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 never went back. You know, that's a that's a long road, you know. And and I remember Jack Sullivan used to say, you know, how do you get there? How do you get there from where we came from? You know, I got there one day at a time, on your arms and in your living rooms, and in these rooms, through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, through daily prayer and meditation. You know, my prayer to God is my petition to Him. My meditation is His petition to me. And there's some responsibility that comes with that. And I try not go a day without with missing that because I believe it's exactly like the 12 and 12 says, that we need to feed our spirit, that that is the sunlight of the Spirit. And, and you know, it's, it's just incredible the way we get to change the quality of our lives. And I owe every bit of it to you all. Uh, my members of my, all, my, all members of my family are sober. Um, my one brother had some trouble after 12 years of sobriety and chose to go back out. And, and he's now returned to Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, is doing well today, doing, doing good today. And, and, you know, more than anything in the world, I know that this program is based on attraction and not promotion. And I'll tell you how I know that. Because that one brother that's, that promoted you to me was transferred out of town and, and, and moved to Lexington. And the person that, that attracted me to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was somebody that I didn't think had anything to offer me. He was somebody that I didn't think I could learn anything from. He was my baby brother, 20 years old, a year sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Patrick showed up in front of me sober and quiet. And I saw something in him that I wanted for myself. And that's you know, what happened with, me, with my life on August the 2nd of 1985. I had no idea when I came to you that I would be here some 16 years later. You know, I just wanted the pain to go away. You know, I would have shortchanged myself. I would have, I would have stopped a long time ago. So thank you. Thank you for giving me what you've given me, for saving my life, for the life of every member of my family, for taking me out of blackouts and bar rooms and hotel rooms and bringing me into your hearts and loving me until I could love love myself. God bless each and every one of you all. Thank you for having me, committee. I appreciate it. It's a great place here. It's a great weekend. And I look forward to meeting more of you all. I hope we always come back. Thanks.